Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. The Great Impulse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, how does it feel? How does it feel to be swept up in the replication crisis tsunami with one of your studies with former friend of the podcast, now enemy of the <laughs> podcast, Yoel Inbar, not replicating? As a social psychologist, I've, I've been swept up in the crisis. This is, this is nothing. This is nothing. Um, yeah, no. This I'm glad. I'm glad they replicated us. I was honestly starting to get my feelings hurt that nobody had bothered to replicate anything I'd ever been on. <laughs> I'm like, come on. You didn't think it was because they knew that it was going to be rock solid, everything that you did, and it would just be a waste of their time? <laughs> no, I knew it was because no one gives a shit about most of what I do. This is This was an attempt at replicating a paper that we did with Yoel, uh, Josh Nob, and Paul Bloom. Um, on implicit attitudes towards gay people. And the study that failed to replicate was the one where we used the Nob effect, so I blame Josh Nob. Yeah, well, that's always a safe bet. On Reddit, uh, a Redditor, Booty Booty Fart Fart, posted... <laughs> Best name ever. <laughs> it really is. Uh, posted a uh, something saying that this large-scale replication project found that uh, one of these, the discussed sensitivity and homophobia, that result is, quote, not real. They, 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 he walked that back, booty, booty, fart, fart, walked that back <laughs> um, afterwards. And uh, one of the Redditors on that post, we're going to talk about your response, which I thought was pitch perfect. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, it's, it's, but, not, it's rare that I get a compliment from you, so I'm like very happy right now. I know you're bullish. <laughs> Uh, but one another redditor said, uh, second reason to be glad they did this replication uh, when Tamler begins his next intro segment. Dave, how does it feel? <laughs> so I thought I would just uh, take that suggestion. Um, okay, so that's what we're going to talk about in the second segment. In the third segment, three segments, we had our annual... Thanksgiving, me and my stepmother discussion, drunker than usual this time. And like I pre It's just escalating. It's just <laughs> getting pretty soon. Uh, yeah. Pretty no. soon you guys will just be pat. It'll be an hour of silence in the microphone as you guys <laughs> snoring. That I, I haven't listened to it. I don't remember it all that well. I remember pre gaming for it, 
but because we were going to talk about standpoint epistemology and there's no way I was going to do that sober. But, uh, <laughs> so anyway, and then in the third and then and then the third and the first segment, one of my colleagues, Justin Coates, sends me stuff every so often, things that don't necessarily paint academic philosophy in the best light. Uh, he, he sent us the the Vox piece on Inside Out. Good movie, oh, bad yeah. metaphysics. Remember that? Right, right. But so the latest thing that my colleague sent me is <laughs> this was a recent winner of the Mark Sanders Prize in Philosophy of Mind, which carries with it a $10,000 award, which is pretty substantial. Um, Especially for a philosopher. For a ph- Exactly. <laughs> we don't get thrown $10,000 uh, usually <laughs> under any circumstances. But the abstract of this prize-winning paper in Philosophy of Mind was something that I thought we could read and talk about briefly. I, I am looking forward to to reading. You have read uh, it. I, no, yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to, to reading it on air. <laughs> Why don't you read uh, it? Because you're better at uh, reading <laughs> Okay. I was going to say, uh, what's the name of the guy from Boardwalk Empire who read the sorority letter? It'd be great, uh, Michael Shannon. Yeah, Michael Shannon. It'd be great to have Michael Shannon read this. The cunt punt. The cunt punt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this is um, paper entitled "Experiencing Left and Right in a Non-Orientable World." Consider the totality of your phenomenal experience right now. Your total experience. Is there a total experience which is phenomenally different from yours, but which differs only by a mirror symmetry? the way that a picture of a left hand differs from a picture of a right hand? Or is there no phenomenal difference between a total experience and its mirror reversal? Do you understand that question? No, you already lost me. I was just going to answer no until I realized it wasn't really a yes or no question. Why is it not a yes or no question? Because it's a, there's an or in there. <laughs> oh, I see. Right. <laughs> is there a total experience which is phenomenally different from yours, but which differs only by... M- or is there, well, it's it's kind of a yes or no, right? Or is there no phenomenal difference? Right, right. So, to this. <laughs> so I would argue it is a yes or no question. but That's a metaphysical question. By the way, this is a prize in in uh, philosophy of mind. Yes. Um, and these are special. Oh, you did say these are special people. These are, yeah. Um, okay. If you think that there is a phenomenal distinction between an experience and its mirror reversal a position Chalmers dubs e-categoricalism, then you may find it intuitive that your mirror twin, someone who is a molecule for molecule mirror reflection of you, in general has a different experience than you. The idea that you would have an intuition about this. I know. Just, just like a bare kind of intuition is hilarious. But uh, That's okay. right. That's really... <laughs> you might find it intuitive, just kind of obvious, <laughs> self-evident almost. That yeah. someone who is a molecule for molecule mirror reflection of you. As I don't even understand what the. I pride myself in having a super high tolerance for stuff. Yeah. Um. And I. I. And 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 even an ability to understand dense writing, but I don't. I don't know what this is. After Way all, than me. Yeah. <laughs> after all, if you're looking at your left hand, she. <laughs> Is looking at your right hand. Wait, at so her right is hand. my mirror twin a, a, a girl? Yeah. A woman? Always. Always. Okay. That's what it means. The opposite of a boy <laughs> is a girl. That's right. um, <laughs> uh, 
Lee, wow. 2006, <laughs> argues, however, that your mirror twin must be your phenomenal twin if relationalism about space is correct. <laughs> Paired with e-categoricalism, which sounds like a, a bad web startup from the late 90s. Paired with e-categoricalism, this has puzzling consequences. Here I begin by challenging Lee. He's, throwing, he's opening up a can of whoop-ass on Lee. <laughs> I argue that even given relationalism about space, your mirror twin can fail to be your phenomenal twin. Ooh. But, but this result is limited. It only is, that's where the humility comes in. It only applies where you and your mirror twin both live in a universe with an orientable topology. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah, if your universe, Tamler, if, you, if your universe has a non-orientable topology in the sense in which Mobius strips and Klein bottles have non-orientable topologies, yeah. then, then your mirror, t- then the result uh, <laughs> fails to fails. replicate. Yeah, yeah, and your mirror twin must be your phenomenal twin after all. Yes. Moreover, moreover, this moral, uh, it was a moral claim, this moral applies even to those who reject relationalism about space. And the upshot is that everyone... Non-relationalists included, Tamler, must either abandon e-categoricalism or choose between puzzling consequences along the lines Lee outlines, the most promising of which may be, get ready for it, property dualism. (laughs) Okay, I think you missed a key sentence, though, in your reading, otherwise very good reading. If your universe has a non-orientable topology... In the sense in which Mobius strips and Klein bottles have non-orientable topologies, then your mirror twin must be your phenomenal twin. Twin, or did you read that? After? I read it. I, were you crazy? <laughs> what are you smoking, man? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I like. I, I'm still. I was still trying to capture my intuition on whether. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you were. You were. Uh, okay, you did. Appealing. Read that. What's a Klein bottle? Like I, don't, I have no idea. Is that like I've, bourbon? <laughs> It's a German. It's a German bottle of some sort. Uh-huh. Um, so, like, I, I I emailed this to a friend who's not at all a philosopher, and she said, when I when I gave her the upshot is that everyone must abandon e categoricalism. She said, "Fuck that! I love e categoricalism." Yeah, that was my actually. That's what I uh, replied to to Justin when he sent this. That I I'm loath to give up e categoricalism, but. I know. I also hate to choose. I mean, this is the this is the dilemma that's posed to us. This is the ten thousand dollar dilemma. The Sophie's choice of of uh, <laughs> philosophy of mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you either have to abandon e categoricalism or choose between puzzling consequences along the lines that Lee outlines. I mean, I, Lee, Lee can't be happy about this. You know what? I think I disagree with your friend. I'm, I, I might bite the bullet and abandon. <laughs> I can't believe you're, you're you're as irrational as I thought. <laughs> I think we just have different intuitions about mirror reverse molecule molecule for molecule mirror reversal um, replicates of us. Uh, I, what does it mean to be a molecule for molecule mirror reflection? Mirror reflection. To yeah. to to. <laughs> To be fair to to Jonathan Simon, Doctor Simon, um, I I really tried to read the actual paper, and um, here's here's an example that he gives. So Lee in 2006 considers the following case: 
at the possible world W1, in case you're going to have trouble of keeping track of two worlds. So there's a notation for you. Righty is looking at a sign that says MIT. The possible world W2 is the mirror reflection of W1. Accordingly, Righty's counterpart at W2 is Lefty, and Lefty is looking at a sign that says TIM. Now, you'd expect that Righty and Lefty would have distinct experiences. Let's not oversell the point. You might also expect Righty and Lefty to say different things when asked what their signs say. Uh, but they wouldn't since they're molecule for molecule mirror reflections of one another and mirror reflection doesn't affect what sound you make. So if righty is going to utter the word MIT, lefty will too. Presumably if righty reads English from left to right, lefty reads it from right to left. Huh? Mm. Uh, they, we have no way of distinguishing the mirror universe. I like this. Lee goes on to claim that relationalism has some very surprising consequences. For example, if our brains and bodies were perfectly symmetric, we'd be unable to have asymmetric experiences. So we can deduce, transcendentally, in parentheses, (laughs) from the asymmetric character of our experience that our brains or bodies are asymmetric. I... I, (laughs) I really don't want to make fun of, of something when I don't understand it, because for all I know, Jonathan Simon is a genius and I'm an idiot. But do I don't have asymmetric experience. I don't. <laughs> so I think both of us are are wondering whether it's a total fucking cheap shot to read an abstract, yeah, exactly. scan through a paper. <laughs> Uh, about a literature that we don't know yeah. and start making fun of it. And let's let's assume for the sake of argument that it is maybe. Uh, and anyway, that's what we do. I mean, we uh, took shots at grad students. We don't give a fuck, right? Like we're not we're not ethical. We, I, we I I am. And by the way, I have a guilty confession for later. We forgot oh. to say that that's going to be. This is going to be part of it. But one guilty confession is clearly that we have no problem making fun of things we don't understand. I mean, I, I, I will actually, say I am. Pu- I, I mean, I under you're you're making fun of something that you don't understand. <laughs> but I have published in the philosophy of mind. <laughs> That's true. I have published published a paper on zombies. So I well, kind of resent the implication that I might not be a specialist in this field, that I might uh, not be an expert in AOS. Uh, I, I'm man enough to apologize to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Chalmers, you know, my paper was a critique of of Chalmers. Now, some I, of my I best friends that, are philosophers of mind, so I feel like I have the right to say whatever I want. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Our friend of the podcast, J- Josh Weisberg, was on this show, um, and was he? Was he? <laughs> <laughs> Here's my question, though: Is this all like this could be a hoax, right? As far as we know. Like, this could be a hoax article. Somebody who has steeped in the Chalmers property dualism, zombie literature, plus the Lee, whoever this Lee is, uh, the relationism about space, uh, all of that. Like, you just, you spend six years, I mean, as far as we know anyway, this could be a hoax. It makes no more sense than one of those crazy gender studies or whatever uh, yeah. essays that you would publish in the journal of fat poetry I, or whatever. I, I generally <laughs> big bone poetry um i i genuinely don't know i think this part of my discomfort is is you know i took philosophy of mind in grad school we you read about zombies and i don't 
I, I think maybe there is a world of metaphysics that I just am lost about about what questions they're asking. Like I'm so lost about what questions you're asking that clearly this is built on someone's argument about an argument about an argument or something where I've just completely lost track. And it gives me a little bit of anxiety to not be able to, to grok this. Like to it, it and I for, like I genuinely have zero way aside from knowing who this person was and their reputation. I would have zero way of distinguishing between a hoax article about this and this. I, I like epistemologically I'm at all like But I wanna I ask you this because I, I, I like what is your credence that this is all a f- is because none of this depends on any kind of empirical result. It is just spun out of thin air out of, con- you know, very complicated conceptual analysis and appeals to intuitions that nobody would possibly have unless you were already steeped into these puzzles and these things. You don't, nobody has, yeah. you couldn't run like an X-Fi study. You couldn't take Josh Nob and uh, go out and pull people about this in Washington Square Park. So it's really just intuitions, conceptual analysis, and various theories that have been built out of, you know, all a priori. So, I mean, uh, that's not... I, I don't think that's where the the problem lies. I know that you probably think so. Like I actually think that that some some intuitive basis with conceptual analysis that follows can yield really interesting things. I'm not oh, saying sorry. that that's the problem. I'm saying that what's your credence given that this was just a description of what oh, this yeah. is, given that this particular literature and debate, if it's a debate. I mean, clearly it must be because this won the big prize. Well, he start, uh, he's definitely starting a debate with Lee. Start, starting some shit with Lee, starting a beef. <laughs> Somebody's going to get shot. Somebody's going to get killed. <laughs> it, I don't know if it's righty or lefty. The, <laughs> like, could this just be total bullshit? Like, like, what's your credence that it is? That this is not yielding anything... Yeah. I mean, interesting. Given, ex, un, unless you're like part of this weird club, this yeah. is not going to uh, reveal anything useful or illuminate. It's not going to illuminate anything. I mean, I think w- what I was resisting in my interruption was that it's not why I think. Th- but to answer your question, I, I have very low credence that this is actually. Uh, and I do feel harsh saying this, but I actually just you know t- I. I I have an opinion about this. I actually think that this, if this is a problem that has, that is even analytically interesting, then this paper doesn't do a job of telling me what that problem is. Like if, if you can't, I'll I'll give you an example. So I, in in fact, I wanted to pitch this to you the other day. There was an article that came out um, on the philosophy of holes in Eon. It was, the metaphysics uh, of holes. What is a hole, yeah. right? And that I, th- it, <laughs> I think that it's <laughs> ludicrous that people spend their time trying to figure out whether you know if if you break a donut, is there still a hole in the middle, kind of thing. And where where they mean like actually like metaphysically a hole, like a, an object is a whole object. I think yeah. that it's that it's sort of ridiculous, but I understand it. Like they actually went out of their way to 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 like I don't know. Are we not I, talking about that right now? Because we didn't, we didn't read it. For, um, we, but, but I understand. Like I can understand the problem and reject its importance. This, 
like I can't even understand. And given that in our in our uh, episode on thought experiments, we talked about the zombie problem, and uh, I think I concluded in that that I I really think that it might be some sort of just pyramid scheme in philosophy where where yeah. you know you're just training people to make an argument a subargument of a subargument and that i think it's completely lost its way given the original uh, publication but so so i feel like this is spun out of control into being fake problems and i'm not convinced otherwise because unlike say reading you know we're, what we're not doing is reading a physics paper and mocking it because we don't understand the math behind it this right. is something no that math. i th- yeah this is something that i think we ought to be able to understand if and, it's a problem, then we ought to be able to understand yeah, the problem. Yeah, right. Yeah, I have a fear yeah. that a lot of modern metaphysics is going down this route, where they've they've just lost touch with what real problems are. And again, I say that with like you know who, who the fuck am I? But I I can say that is true for a lot of subfields of psychology too, where it's like wait, yeah. there's not enough metaphysics to be talked about, so they have to invent problems. There's no attempt to make this relevant to anything outside like commitments you know whether you're a relationalist or an e-categoricalist or whatever there's no attempt to make this something that would matter in any way to any other field to any like to anybody who didn't have some commitment to something in this sub 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 field of philosophy anyway i think that the truth is we're both salty for not having received ten thousand dollar awards for for our papers yeah we're all just jealous and i'm sure jonathan simon i mean here's the thing david chalmers is a really good guy he is so good for philosophy so generous he's smart he's a kind of a genius in that old school philosophy way but in that old school philosophy like saul kripke way that also has been kind of detrimental, or at least you might think if you are inclined in a certain way like me. If When I read the Stoics and when I read Plato, and even when I read Aristotle, who's not a good writer, really dry and somewhat technical, I can grasp on to the importance of it. And a lot of the students can too. And I, I think that that that's a really valuable thing and and even you know as much shit as we give you know the mary problem or the like at least that is something that you can you know talk talk about and debate over drinks to some degree and joke about and understand and it seems like this has sprouted to some next level obscurity and it's like willful obscurity you know you yeah. keep coming up with these new positions these new subpositions e-categoricalism non-orientable typology orientable typology you can't be an e-categorialist and have a non-orientable and be a relationalist and all this stuff and it's just yeah i I don't know. You know, if somebody wants to to defend why this is a, a problem, feel free to, to absolutely email us. tell us. Tell us yeah. why this is something that anybody should care about. If if they're not I, directly steeped in this literature, I don't even want. I, I don't even want to know whether anyone should care about. It. I want to know what exactly is being said. That like I just have zero idea about like what the claim is. Like, but I don't it, think I, like so. So maybe we disagree a little bit. Like I I'm not convinced that this isn't the clearest exposition of 
whatever this position and argument is. Like, I don't know if there's a clearer way of presenting what the the argument that the person is making. Like, he doesn't seem like he's a terrible writer. It just seems like it's the debate itself that's out of control, not this particular contribution but, to it. But do you understand what the debate is? No. So that's what I'm saying. Like I, I maybe my view is my my claim is more charitable that that I think that there might be some something like a an obscure problem um, that is that is of interest to people who care about these sorts of things. There, I just can't tell what it is. I just like if because I feel like I would have much more confidence if if I understood what the claim was and then said, "But this is a stupid claim." Right. Right. I, and I, do, I don't even know what it would be for to have a spatial topology that's not or, non-orientable like a Mobius strip. And a Klein bottle. We so don't the Klein say, bottle an analogy doesn't do it not, for you? I was just offended that he said non-orientable when it's non-Asian American. No. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do our guilty confessions very quickly. Right. Mine's not very long. <clears throat> All right. Uh, do you, you want me to go first? What do you want? Yeah. I will do a, here's, here's my little musical interlude to Guilty Confessions. Everything is my fault. All right, here's my guilty confession. I was struggling because I realized that I actually view myself as such a good person that it's hard for me to generate examples of doing anything wrong. But I finally, finally thought of one today. I have... On more than one occasion, actually, um, received and accepted gifts that I knew were stolen. Mm. Um, yeah. In one case, I'll give the specific example of one case. Uh, I became mild friends with somebody who worked at Barnes & Noble while I was in uh, grad school. And I, this is actually when the translation of Borges that I use, the fictions, uh-huh. um, when that had just come out in, in hardcover and I really wanted it, but I was, I was kind of a poor grad student at the time. And, but nonetheless, I was like, no, I really want to buy this. Like, and I had a sort of, you know, just, I just stomached it. I was like, I'm going to pay the money for this book. The, the guy who I knew, like really just from being at that Barnes and Noble a few times and talking to him, uh, when I got to the cash register, I had that and I had a couple of magazines, probably the source, the hip hop magazine that I used to read. He puts it in a bag and says, you're all set. Yeah. And I, I was like, what? Like, it took me a second to realize what was going on. And he was stealing on behalf, you know, he was stealing for me. But it was obviously still stealing. Like, an employee, it's not an employee discount. It's not free. And I took it. Um, How is this different than all the movies you've downloaded for free and all the music? and uh, Because digital... Uh, digital things can be copied in an unlimited number of times um and so 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 something (laughs) something about that yeah something about there the principle is i i steal something and it's still there (laughs) as opposed to a book oh i see right Right. you prevented somebody uh, yeah from exactly i see all right did you did you come with a real one like i did i did this is uh uh, this is this is going to be hard to confess, but it's you played the music, so I guess I have to do it. <laughs> I watched the movie As Good As It Gets. So this was a movie. 
starring Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton. <laughs> so that could be my guilty confession right there, just that I, I saw it. I, <laughs> and I, that, and I, I saw it by be. myself. And and I it's not like I was on a date or I lost a bet or anything like. When you that. say you saw it, you're using a passive uh, passive verb in a very weird way. You you watched it. It you was chose seen. <laughs> it was watched. No, actually, so it was. I I, I was coming back from Dartmouth to Boston. Uh, it was there was a conference, a moral psych conference in Dartmouth. And that was where I interviewed John Haidt for the original Very Bad Wizard book. And I was coming back because my friends got Red Sox tickets. As Good As It Gets was on the bus. And I was hungover and I watched it. And and I watched it on purpose, like voluntarily. <laughs> I, I didn't like lose a bet. I wasn't forced to. Um, and at the end of the movie, they're on some bridge. I cried like... I cried like a baby, like I was weeping and I was hiding my tears from the people on the bus because it was so embarrassing. So I was literally like my, I like tears. My face is just wet with tears. I think this is partly because I was so hungover and underslept, but I was, and, and, you know, and this was as good as it gets, like Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson meeting on a bridge and, probably kissing or something it's not it's it's helen hunt it's not well no but Diane keaton is the one that he ends up with i think oh spoiler i think he starts out with helen hunt or maybe or maybe not maybe he ends up with helen hunt i don't know i like yeah i've blocked a lot of this out it's yeah no Diane keaton is not is not in the movie according to she is in the movie you saying she's not in the movie at all I think you're yeah. really wrong about that. I'm I'm looking through the IMDb. Holy shit! Was it as good as it gets? <laughs> so maybe it wasn't as good as it gets. No, it was something like this. So it was. Was it something's got to give? <laughs> I don't know. This has now become the most boring guilty confession <laughs> segment we've done. Yeah, it was sorry. It was story. something's got to give. That's what it is. <laughs> Can't even come with the even your fake stories suck. <laughs> yeah, so something's got to give. I think uh, possibly <laughs> as good as it gets, but more likely something's got to give. Uh, we'll be right back. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you in part by Tamler, a sponsor that I'm really excited about. We've had them on before, uh, but it's the perfect sponsor. Audible. It's the time of year when everybody's thinking about thoughtful gifts. So think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Um, now's the best time to do it with a special offer. Access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, Tamler Summers, Why Honor Matters. Um, you can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals you can't hear anywhere else. You can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at the gym, on your commute or just on the go, you'll also enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, which is great, actually. You can uh, you can lend somebody an audiobook, um, an audiobook library that you keep forever, even if you cancel. Um, right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Great deal. Uh, it is a great deal, actually. Give yourself the gift of listening. And while you're at it, think about giving the gift of Audible to someone on your list. For more, go to audible.com slash very bad wizards 
or text Very Bad Wizards to 500 500. That's audible.com slash Very Bad Wizards. I love Audible Tamler. Tell me a book that you have uh, picked. My recommendation um, is a book that I am almost done with right now. Not on Audible, but I, I think it would be a perfect audio book. And I looked it up, and it's there, and it's available, and it looks like it has a great narr- narrator and great reviews. It is All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. It is uh, a book I read over Thanksgiving almost entirely. I still have, like... 40 more pages to go and I've just been swept up in it and I love it. And I think you go on a road trip, you're going to your, your family's house for the holidays or you're just driving to work. Uh, it, it's a, it's a perfect audiobook. It will, it'll put you in a trance. It might, you might drive off the road, but <laughs> <laughs> as long I, as you don't do that, you'll be, you'll be happy. I, I uh, have a pick. Um, I love the author, Neil Stevenson. He's just a fucking smart guy who is, I guess, works in speculative fiction. Um, He wrote a book called Snow Crash a long time ago, um, which was super influential, a cyberpunk book. But the one I'm going to recommend is called Cryptonomicon. And it's just a well, well done um, uh, book that covers the sort of the history of World War II and ideas in, in cryptography all like sort of wrapped together in in uh, a plot and it's long as hell it is the audiobook itself is 42 hours and 53 minutes um so you can you can drive across the country a couple of times um and still not be done with it it's but it's it's a great it's a it's a great book um he's he is one of my favorite authors i recommend it any other <clears throat> recommendations? Yeah. Um, <laughs> my number two pick is Tamler Summers, Why Honor Matters. Um, I haven't listened to the audiobook. I, I'm an Audible member, um, and I, I think that I have credits where I could download it, so I have to just decide whether or not it's no, that's worth okay. It's definitely worth it. <laughs> Narrated by you, and actually I definitely am going to download it because I need to get your rap verses, put a beat to them. <laughs> So again, right now, limited time, three months of Audible for six ninety five a month, more than half off the regular more than half off the regular price. Go to audible.com slash very bad wizards or text very bad wizards to five hundred five hundred to get started.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for the way they interact with us, all the emails that we get, um, people tweeting us, people posting about our episodes on Reddit and on Facebook and Instagram when that <clears throat> when that is posted regularly and at the proper times um so yeah we'd like to thank all of you it's it's kind of amazing like as people think social media is such a cesspool and it can be but it really just almost all of the time isn't with the community that we've built people are uh, have sent us great ideas great criticisms and sometimes they even agree with us and thank us, and we really appreciate that. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us at Tamler at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards. Like us on Facebook. Uh, go to our Reddit, our subreddit, which is Very Bad Wizards, one word. And um, follow us on Instagram. And you can support us in more tangible ways by going to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal. Um, you can click on the Amazon link and then do your normal shopping. If you could get in the habit of doing that, that would be awesome, uh, especially now around the time of the holidays and the time of maybe buying books next uh, next semester. If you're a student, that would be great. Big purchases, we'll get a small cut of that. Small purchases, we'll also get a small cut of that. It all adds up, and we appreciate that. And finally, you can become one of our Patreon patrons. Uh, we love our Patreon patrons. Now that the semester is winding down, we're going to have some free time. We're going to do our Sorry to Bother You bonus segment fairly soon. Uh, I think also within the next few weeks, I'm going to be recording with Jesse and Natalia, uh, a, a follow-up Twin Peaks bonus spot, and um, and we're going to do our listener-selected episode. I think we're it's right around the time that we that we should do that, and that's worked out great both times that we've done that. Have we done it twice? Yeah, I think we've done it twice. Yeah. Um, uh, no, didn't we do it more? We Is did the intelligence, twice? and we uh, did, yeah. Yeah, um, twice. yeah, the what was it? Personality psychology. That's yeah. right. So, have we? And by the way, twice? if there's, I if, feel like if, we've done it one other time. Yeah, maybe we're good at forgetting what we've done. Um, if there's any interest, somebody posted on Reddit that they'd love to hear us do an AMA. So, if there is any interest in that, let us know or go on to Reddit and and, and tell us. Yeah, we can either do it on Reddit or we can do it for our Patreon patrons. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so a lot of so look out for that and um, and thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Full of gratitude. Thank you. All, All right, you. they like us. They really like us. <laughs> That's um, your Sally Field. Exactly. <laughs> they like me. Um. <clears throat> Okay. Did you cry at the end of Officer and a Gentleman? Is that is that what that's for? I don't remember what she won for. That was her Oscar acceptance speech. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't remember what she was winning for. And I never saw Officer and a Gentleman. And we have won no prizes, to be clear. Yeah, when is gonna somebody somebody gonna give us a podcast prize? 
Yeah. You know, you know Daily News, Justin Weinberg, your boy, he he posts about Hi-Fi Nation. And congrats to Hi-Fi Nation for uh, getting, you know, to be part of Slate's whatever network. Congrats to, the, to, to him, to Barry Lamb. But it was like, finally, we have a breakthrough philosophy podcast. <laughs> it was like, wait, what? Hello, we're here. And then he gives his download numbers, which are impressive, but let's just say not quite or anywhere near as impressive as our download numbers. <laughs> like, wh- who do we have to blow to like be considered a breakthrough philosophy podcast? I feel like we're too, we're too old. If we were, if we were going to be a breakthrough podcast, podcast it would have happened by now so fuck pride tamler fuck pride like it it just seems like the the playing field is not level for what is considered a breakthrough podcast hi-fi nation is so well produced do you really think we have a shot at breaking through (laughs) they don't have awesome beats (laughs) i wasn't even i wasn't at all being sarcastic he deserves that um i don't i don't know that we'd be a good fit i think that we could have I'm not 10 saying we million... should be on Slate's network. I'm saying that Justin fucking Weinberg should call but, should not say that that's the first like to the extent that he's a big breakthrough philosophy podcast, we are a breakthrough <laughs> philosophy podcast. We're a we're psychology and philosophy tamler. This is the true offense to this uh, this conversation. I I feel like you you just completely forget that moral psychology is is what we're doing here. But that's wait, but you care more about philosophy. <laughs> I I actually, you know, who really should problem. be offended is the partially examined life. Like, let's be let's be honest. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they were they broke through uh, before we did. We would yeah. never say that. Yeah, no. All right. Speaking of saltiness, we, we, you know what? I'm taking lighter side. I love their beef. The Brian Leiter <laughs> Justin Weinberg beef. Well, what's is, their beef? I don't know about it. Yeah, they, well, they're the two sort of rival philosophy blogs, and lighter. More than uh, Wein- Justin Weinberg doesn't take as many shots at Leiter, but Leiter takes a lot of shots, including calling him Weinberg, W-H-I-N-E, uh, <laughs> and calling it the the Philosophy Safe Space blog. And oh, my God. Something like that. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, it's, it's fun. I feel like we need to start. But it could end in tragedy. I could see it ending in tragedy. This uh, have we have we not learned anything from Biggie and Tupac? <laughs> <laughs> have we not learned people? <laughs> All right, are we gonna yes talk replication? Yes. Booty booty yeah. fart fart. Booty booty fart fart. I mean, uh, what, first of all, I don't know how he got that username. I I tried, and it was like booty booty fart fart four thirty one was the only one I could get. <laughs> <laughs> So props, <laughs> yeah. Props to the uh, the real booty booty fart. fart. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so he says that he 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 starts out. We still love you though, Dave. Oh, no, large scale replication project finds that Dave, Dave's and colleagues. I like that. Isn't right. Yoel the lead author on that? Yeah. Paper? Fuck you, Yoel. Yeah. Fuck you, Paul. Fuck you, Josh Nob. <laughs> it's me and my friends. Yeah. Exactly. It's, and you're it's like, like Di- Diana Ross and the Supremes. <laughs> <laughs> your retinue uh most cited that one of their most cited findings association between disgust sensitivity and homophobia is not real we still love you though dave seriously though the methods that dominated the field just 10 years ago put even the most rigorous social scientists at risk of false positives i'm i th- he, it seems to be implying that you're the most one of the most rigorous social scientists i don't know it's, where uh, 
Uh, well, evidence. It's Though evidence. Dave's conscientiousness percentile does raise some red <laughs> flags. I don't know what that what that is. I think he means that I care so much about being uh, being. No, I care so little. <laughs> I'm very low on conscientiousness. <laughs> anyway, a lot of the failed replications in the project didn't surprise me much, uh, the priming studies, for instance, but this is one hit kind of, but this one hit kind of hard. I would have put a lot of faith in this association, and I mention it a fair amount in my social psych classes. Oh, booty, booty, fart, fart is a professor, I guess, or his grad student. Yeah. So the link to the paper there, he grudgingly rec- uh, recognizes Yoel Inbar as the lead <laughs> author. And then he also a- edits and he says... Well, uh, he says, basically, he says that, that it could it could be that it failed to replicate now because the the homophobia that was present in, in whatever year we published this um, was... Isn't. Yeah, and that, that now it's gone down quite a bit, which there is evidence for, but... Yeah. but um, uh, but but the fact that that they examined it across a large number of cultures may undermine that a bit. So, so you want to read your response because I I read it over Thanksgiving break and I I thought it was great. Yeah, and I thought so like th- this th- is th- how people should respond to these kinds of things happening as they are going to continue to happen. Yeah. So so I just I wrote I'm super happy that they did this. Kathleen Schmidt spearheaded this replication attempt. Props to her, and Yoel and I shared our materials to get things going. This is a much more robust test of the hypothesis we tested in the original paper, which was using the NOB effect as a sort of implicit measure. Uh, we flipped the traditional finding that, well, that's not important. The Many Labs project did not attempt to replicate the second study we reported using the IAT as an implicit measure, finding a similar effect of disgust sensitivity on implicit anti-gay attitudes. But resources are limited, and that first study was likely underpowered and more surprising, so they chose well. Um, let me just quickly describe before I go on, let me quickly describe the finding because it's, I think that it's, uh, as I said, I think it's a good idea, even if it was wrong. Um, the NOB effect is the finding that side effects that are negative, uh, are seen as more intentional than side effects that are positive. So, um, so if in the classic example, if there is a, a, you know, a CEO of a company who's manufacturing a product and it, it is, has a side effect of harming the environment, and the CEO says, "I don't care about harming the environment. Let's make the product anyway." Um, uh, people people say that he intentionally harmed the environment, but when you compare that to a side effect of of uh, that is positive, say the side effect is that it helps the environment, the CEO says, "I don't care if it helps this helps the environment. I just want to make a profit. Let's manufacture the product." People view that as non intentional. So there's this asymmetry in in what people consider intentional. There's been a whole bunch of work on why this this finding is is the case. Um, uh, and what we did, and I think this was Paul's suggestion, but I thought it was great, was use intentionality ratings to see if they could track something um, that's morally wrong that people might not be willing to admit. So the idea was if you describe a music video director who's uh, who makes a music video that encourages gay men to kiss in public. And he says, I don't care about that. I just want to make a good music video. Um, And we say, did the director intentionally promote gay kissing in public? And what we found was that, um, that people who were higher in disgust sensitivity tended to view this as more intentional an act compared to a music video. Exactly. So we flipped it 
to 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 use the intentionality rating as as a way of maybe tapping into an implicit view that that homosexual that that homosexuality or in specifically gay kissing in public would be wrong. Um, this this pattern was not present if you just said that it was a, a straight couple kissing in public, um, and yeah. So it's not that they're just anti PDA. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so okay, so. Uh, I do something very annoying by talking in questions. Was the many labs replication a fair test of the hypothesis? I think yes. They used our materials and ran the exact same study as far as I know, as far as I remember. It's, is the truth that there is no effect? I can't see how I could possibly conclude otherwise in good faith. As the original post states, the one thing I might think a possibility is that public attitudes, especially of the sort of people taking an online test, have actually shifted. There's evidence for this from longitudinal data on the gay straight IAT, which side note basically shows that over time people's implicit attitudes towards gays are uh, getting less negative it's a so different world the iat is a good measure <laughs> well whatever <laughs> it's tracking it's tracking that <laughs> who knows what it's tracking um it's a different world now that was in the early 2000s when we ran this test so it's not out of the question if that's the case then awesome but the truth is we now have a much better set of standard practices and i wish i could go back in time and run a few hundred rather than only 44 participants which mm-hmm. is shameful um, only then could I know with any confidence. Um, there's probably data by countries that I haven't seen that might address this issue. And it seems that in their data, discuss sensitivity simply predicted intentionality judgment, something that might be interesting. But Yoel and I and Josh and Paul want to know true things, not simply protect our findings. We've been waiting for a few years to find out these results, and here they are. I'll never understand the reaction of some scientists to respond to results that undermine their findings with defensiveness. I mean, I will kind of understand it, but well, well this talk is, about yeah, that. this yeah. is what I want, the reason yeah, I wanted to talk about this, yeah. Yeah, sure, the idea was good and interesting, in my opinion, but it turns out likely not right. So hopefully this gets out there and some young student isn't puzzled why they can't find what we found. Um, and then I have a little side note, but, uh, and in short, glad they did this and the information we're getting is getting us closer to knowing what is true about how these judgments work. How could a scientist not welcome such a thing? And this is where the reply says, second reason to be glad they did this. In response to you, <laughs> Tamler begins his next intro segment. Dave, how does it feel? Yeah. Um, the reason, you know, that I read this and proposed this, pitched this to you as an, a, an idea is there's something about it that seems kind of obviously the way you would want to respond um, if there was any kind of good faith attempt on the part of psychologists to find out the truth about um, psychology, the things that they study. And yet it seems so rare that people do react this way. They react defensively. They, you know, there's the famous uh, Susan Fisk methodological terrorists memo. There's the, you know, there's a lot of hostility and this is, there's a lot of bad blood based uh, that, that, that this stuff has generated. And so, you know, obviously there are professional reasons for this that aren't that mysterious. But what I was what I was curious about is to what extent this is so different from other fields where, say, uh, you know, somebody comes – like Frank Jackson, for example, has renounced the Mary <laughs> Color Scientist argument for dualism. And – did not react with the kind of defense. He's like, okay, yeah, he just gave it up. Like that's a good, good argument. Oh, uh, I didn't know that he had abandoned kind of, it. I, I think, yeah, he has. I, I think, I'm pretty sure. 
and uh and you know that happens in philosophy I, I, it doesn't it it or at least there's a difference in the way people react to um to somebody coming up with a similar sort of case that the person used in philosophy say like the kind of uh, intuitive case to prove you know to to generate intuitions about their argument and then someone else comes up and undermines that principle whatever principle they thought they established with a different kind of case and that's just like considered part of the game and it's considered like all something that we're all doing in an attempt to search for the truth and you know sometimes the truth is about a pseudo problem that never should have been debated to begin with but set that aside there's not this level i don't know it seems different the way that social psychologists are react to this stuff as if it's an attack on their professional integrity um, rather than just an attack on a result that they supported, right? Yeah, I, I've actually thought thought a, a lot about this this difference because I mean it's not as if there isn't professional beef in philosophy, right? There are people who hate each other. Yes. Um, you know, I'd say probably Dennett and Searle is, is an example of people who just don't like each other, yes. um, and have carried their beef uh, for years. Um, but in general, I've always been uh, sort of impressed by the way, ever since I started getting to know philosophy and philosophers, thanks in large part to Josh Nob actually, um, I, I was always impressed with the way they would handle criticism. So, you know, oftentimes in a philosophy talk where there's when there's question and answer, somebody raises an objection and people will say, uh, oh, yeah, that's a good that's that's a very good objection. I have to think about that. And they'll even take notes and they'll, you know. They'll add add that comment to their paper, and they'll thank somebody for pointing it out. So there are a few things going on that that I think makes social psychology and maybe just psychology in general different. One is that I don't maybe don't even have the language to say it, but there isn't there is epistemically it's less clear what somebody failing to replicate your work um, means. And in this case, I actually think that that because our study original study was underpowered and this there's methodology methodological and statistical concerns that I trust the many labs finding more than my own finding but it really it really is a little weird if you run a study that's say robust and somebody else does the same thing and doesn't find it it's it's very hard unlike say a counterexample it's super hard to know what's going on um and that that buffer that that buffer of in, epistemological insecurity, I think, can lead you to defend um, because it's actually might be true that you're that you're not wrong, um, and so that's one thing. But the second thing is that that I think often if you if you attack a psychologist's work and try to show that their findings aren't right. What it means is often years and years of work and grant money and and you know uh, a, a lot of effort put into this and I don't know that it's that it would be that different than if you hinged your philosophical career on a particular idea on the categoricalism on the categorical all of a sudden this it's obviously this not true. punk at NYU John Simon or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who is he? <laughs> Who's Benny Blanco from the Bronx? Methodological um, terrorist. Yeah. So so I you know, it's sometimes I think 
uh, more more might be at stake. You have the careers of your students. You have um, the grant <laughs> so money. So you're saying, oh, it's like you have your silly little positions, and so if somebody refutes it, it's not a big deal for you. No, but we I mean, actually have like grant money and like this is. But it, like, I mean, I think it is a big deal. But what's controlled for is that in both cases, your your um, your intellect might be harmed. But only in the social, in the case of psychology, might it be the case. It's not true for me in this case. Um, but it might be the case that you have had like careers built on this finding. I mean, this is the, you know this has happened with like the ego depletion stuff and the stereotype threat stuff. Like you take that down, and you're taking down a whole bunch of people who have who have like built a career on this Staked, stuff. Yeah, their, yeah, and a whole research program on that stuff. Right. And and so you know maybe that's why they care. In truth, my career has ne- I've never felt that my career is so built on any given finding that 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 it, taking them down. You know, and I don't have the hundred thousand dollar well not anymore NSF grants that that where I'm chugging away at this particular theory and trying to prove it. Here's another disanalogy or difference there are cases of fraud in social psychology like the stemple yes maybe the, stopple. Uh, stopple stopple why don't i always think his name is stemple <laughs> uh stopple and then also who's the guy at harvard mark hauser yeah yeah um so there is that possibility now of course that's not the case here um, but right. the fact that that's even a, like, there's no, there's no way you could fraudulently do a, a counter, like a, a, a thought experiment, right? Like there's no, yeah. there's no fraud there. There's <laughs> that's right. I guess, but there's no, there's no even conceivable way you could do fraud. You could give fraudulent, like intuitive. That's right. I, I mean, actually, I mean, actually, you know, it's. So it's always lingering in the claim that you didn't that your study doesn't replicate. It might be a lingering doubt in yeah. somebody's mind, and it, and you might be be wary that that might be a lingering doubt um, in someone's mind, and be worried about your reputation because you think it might it might carry with it the implication that you that you were dishonest. Um, yeah. I, so that's true, but I I. I I kind of feel like like I actually didn't even th- think that somebody might think that about this. Um, well, because if you were going <laughs> to fabricate da- data, you would have had more than like 44 people in your study. Right? <laughs> exactly. And it would have been about something more interesting. Um, no, it's uh, an interesting result. Like, yeah. I mean, the thing about this result, I think this is why the, the guy posted it, or if it's a guy, booty, booty, fart, fart, um, is that um it's you know like oh yeah that's that seems right but also cool right yeah people higher in disgust sensitivity would also find homosexuality to be immoral just because of the visceral ickiness they feel at seeing two guys kissing yeah um uh, and really, like what's what is failed to replicate is that in using intentionality as a measure of this, because there's plenty of evidence that being higher in disgust sensitivity actually is related to attitudes toward things like gay marriage. Like that is actually super robust. Um, oh, so it's just the no effect the, as it, mediator. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, nowadays we have data across 
across the world in different languages that discuss sensitivities associated with political conservatism and in many cases just in general tradi- so the aspect of conservatism that has to do with traditional views on uh, things like sexuality so that that's it's just the use of the intentionality um, measure um, as Which arguably it, maybe was not the best way to measure it exactly I mean I I, I I think it was clever and it sounded right. And there are all kinds of reasons why it might not be. I mean, it, it might be, you know, I don't even think Josh No believes that the intentionality effect is about moral moral beliefs anymore. So... Um, Has the so, Nob effect replicated pretty well? Yeah, it, it's pretty robust. It, it's, yeah, that's yeah, what I thought too. It's robust. I mean, people tend to use the same example over and over again. Um, so it's hard to know whether, you know... I'm, example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure people have tried other ways, but it is, and it's a pretty intuitive effect. I think what's yeah. up for debate has usually been like, what's going on with it? Like, why are you getting it? I think actually Josh might have something recent about this. I always forget what exactly his interpretation is, but but Does yeah, he? like I, I feel like he's dropped off the face of the earth. I haven't seen him. In a long time. Have you seen him recently? <laughs> I have. I I saw him. I gave a talk at Yale not too long ago, and, right. and I did see him. Is he um, all right? Is he doing okay? He's, he's, he seemed fine. He says. Taylor, how could you say that? We need to have uh, <laughs> Vlad on again. <laughs> Do you really want Vlad on? Shout out well, to Vlad. Vlad, shout out to um, our SJ, so, friend of the podcast. Uh, our, exactly. Um, so I think that those, like, there are, there are real differences between the culture, also just the culture of philosophy, um, encouraging disagreement. I worry about this in psychology where. Um, we, we tend to, in social psychology especially, we tend to raise, as graduate students, people who are a bit snowflakey, um, who, who take it really, it's, so it's less common in social psychology that you would challenge somebody directly in a talk. Uh, you would find some roundabout way of criticizing them. You're like, are you sure this had enough... Uh well, you would have alternate explanations. That you yeah. must do. Yeah, yeah, we definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I've sat in talks where I just don't believe the finding and I would never <laughs> say, I like, I would never say like, I don't believe if I raise my this hand and be bullshit. like, this is bullshit. I was just at a talk. <laughs> I was just at a talk where somebody, this was a baby behavioral economic seminar and some, somebody was g- giving a talk and, uh, uh, a person raised their hand, this, this older professor. And he's like, do you really think this would replicate? <laughs> and I was like, why would he be presenting it if he didn't think <laughs> What do you think? Because because on the one hand you have you raise snowflakes, but on the other hand there does seem to be this group of somewhat combative. I don't know if you call them outsiders because they a lot of them have good jobs that are really emphasizing replication and really into reforming. You know the anti Susan Fisks. Yeah, yeah. There's a good there's a good group of the about you know good researchers. Um, who who have pushed for this? Uh, I was, but they're actually, pretty combative, is my point. They're not. Um, they, and, yeah. and there's a lot of. So I was I was scanning around um, on the internet, and there there's some blog where they do audits of of psychologists. Right. Yeah, and and actually they did one of Susan Fisk, and she did pretty well in, in her. Uh, oh, audit. that's good to know. Yeah, like she had like 59% of her studies seemed robust and held up, whereas like uh, Bowmeister had 20%. Oh, uh, poor Roy. Uh, 
I know. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, he's really bummed about about it. it the ego depletion stuff. Yeah, it, um, Mickey Inslicht on Two Psychologists for Beers, our rival podcast, um, was talking about not. seeing him recently at a conference and how bummed he was. Um, it's, it's sad. I mean, it's sad when you built, built your career on on something and it seems to be falling falling apart. But, to what so, extent is that his fault, or to what extent is that just the fault of where the methods were at the time? It's it's really hard to know because when I look back at the the standards that we used to use in social psychology, it's embarrassing. So there is a point at which I would, you know, y- you would hope that you would start really realizing that what you're doing is is shoddy and and that Built after after that point it would be culpable ignorance. Yeah. Um but having been at a time where we were encouraged, I mean, we we had a very small subject pool at Yale and we were encouraged to just use 12 people per per cell. Uh, that was enough like, you know, 24 people for for two two conditions. And that's just embarrassingly not embarrassingly not enough. And it was well known that that's embarrassingly not enough. Like by many people, there's there's plenty of people who talked about the problems with this kind of methodology before I went to grad school, and I just wasn't taught that. Um, but to answer your question about the, so it's the, Paul's the, fault. It's exactly <laughs> fucking Paul. Um, uh, about the cantankerous ones, I think that it required a bit of uh, the cantankerous personality to yeah. make this movement get off the ground. And I was just having dinner with uh, Brian Nosick, um, who I went to grad school with, um, good friend, and he's now the head of the Open Science Foundation. And a lot of a lot of this movement of replication and, and open science has come from his his good work. And we were, you know, we were talking about the crazy shit that we that, that we were trained to believe. And so there's a there's a layer like uh, a metaphorical sort of layer of a generational divide, let's say, where there are the people I think of my generation who we had to bite the bullet and say, you know, a lot of this shit that we did was just wrong. And there are people in our generation and, uh, and above ours who are really resistant to this. They just don't, yeah. they just won't accept that, that there is value in things like pre-registration and replication. And then there are uh, just people just like graduate students now. It's obvious to them. It's like a, incredible. Yeah. I was, we were talking about how just within the span of two, three years, even, you know, I even feel like it felt like one from one year to the next new incoming grad students were really serious about being methodologically robust. And I think it's a credit to the ideas themselves. If they weren't, if they weren't right, um, people, it wouldn't have such a strong uptake in, in graduate students. So I think we're going the way of the Dodo with our like old methods. So, I mean, what's interesting about this is, and to bring it, to tie it back to parallels with other fields, but, um how often like so you so you say the stuff that you used to do it 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 should have been obvious to you and that it was fundamentally flawed i mean uh, should is a strong word because right, i I, I gen yeah yeah in retrospect it's like right should but but that's the point like when you're in it it doesn't seem obvious 
right? It seems yeah. like you guys are just doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not, tr- and s- how many things are like that now? So <laughs> to tie it back to, philo- like maybe a lot of philosophy is like that, and a lot of the philosophical debates, like it should have been obvious that this was not a. A right. worthwhile debate or it should have been obvious that you know for me it's funny like i've totally changed my mind about so much in f- philosophy since i went to since i was a grad student and published my dissertation published my first work like i ch- completely changed my mind about strawson completely changed my mind about you know i was a, a skeptic a lot of the things that seemed obvious to me then just seem obviously wrong to me now. And but there's there, just got to be stuff like that right now, right? But is there, you know? an, is, there, is there an equivalent that the field has changed its mind about? Uh, not like the method. Like, yeah, no, there hasn't been this methodological, um, well, I don't know, awakening. Yeah. I like there to be like I think that one day this will happen where people start to question conceptual analysis and the the you know the use of cases and thought experiments and counter I, I think one day there will be I, I think I don't know but I think that that will be something that people wake from like it was a bad dream. Um, I mean, you know what I can think of is the the use of the 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 dream of once being able to use formal logic, uh, you know, to to test the truth of of statements in in you know the sort of Bertrand Russell. Yeah, um, but that was a way. dream that was very limited to, you know, a small group of philosophers. Yeah, maybe, but it, but very but it, but it seemed yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not. Yeah, I don't have a good understanding of the scope of it. But it was a very sharp divide between before and after that, right? Yeah. Where yeah, no, that led nobody to the logical, now. then the logical positivists come in, and then uh, I mean, there have been a lot of uh, philosophy of science kind of overhauls, um, but yeah, no, I don't think we have in the contemporary period, and I think. You know, we should. And a long time ago when we were talking to Valerie Tiberius, we talked about this, and I talked about this also in my interview with her, that maybe there was some movement, a gradual reform, building towards focusing philosophy less on epicyclic engineering and more on, um, you know, stuff that's actually mattered. But Right. Um uh, so you asked you asked before, like in psychology, how much of what we're doing now will we then abandon? Yes, and I I think that yes. that I'm, you know, and I I sort of asked this of Brian Nosek last night. I was like, yeah, you know, how, to what extent are you an optimist or a pessimist about the future of this stuff? I think the the only way that we can plug away at, at the only way that we can actually figure out what's what's uh, wrong is for people to keep doing this stuff, um, and I think that. I'm an optimist about the fact that that progress has been made, and I actually am 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 somewhat bullish about the role social psychology has played. I know that it's taken a hit, and you know, like the hit really just means that the Malcolm the Gladwellian style of finding sexy findings and and putting out a press release that's what's taken a hit. 
social psychology lends itself really beautifully to the reform of, of scientific practices because it's really low-hanging fruit to try to replicate a study like the one I did. You can get you can get on the internet, post post right. uh, some of these materials, and find out within hours, you know, what the results were, and um, and I think that's why so many of our findings have sort of just fallen like dominoes. The truth is, this problem is just deep in a whole lot of of branches of yeah. science, um, and we should have Paul to talk about this because I think that cognitive development, developmental psychology. That's a field that's going to start seeing a lot of hits. The problem is it's very hard to replicate studies with babies. But they, right. for a long time, were running studies with, you know, these very, very small samples. Um, and Nine babies. Yeah, and just doing, um, like, the just methodologically a little bit, a little bit fishy, statistically a little bit fishy. And uh, it's just harder. It, same thing with, you know, Mark Hauser. It was hard for people to find out that he was committing fraud because nobody's going to you know go study that thing that he was studying on non-human primates because um, it takes a lot of work and social psychology you know yeah. mo- m- much of it doesn't take a lot of work and you know it's scary like think of how often this must happen in medicine and you just can't get like there's no way to replicate a cancer drug result there is or- it's and it's becoming very clear that you know yeah. uh, we've talked about ionatis's paper uh, m- most research findings are, are published that are published are false um I, I think it's it's super clear that a lot of that shit is is just not going to be true, and that has real fucking implications for people. Like no nobody's going to die because my intentionality finding didn't work, but people are dying because of shoddy practices. And so so good good for us for being at the head. There's I think there it's no coincidence that the head of the head of open science is a social psychologist. Um, and, and so I'm, I don't mind taking the hit. Let us make us go back into our office and, and get less grant money and get less press. Like I'm all for it. We don't need, we don't You'll need that. You'll die kind of for science's sins. We, we are willing to spread our arms and you die. Are, you are reborn. <laughs> you rise again. Slow death. <laughs> but you know, I think that crises like this are a sign that a field has uh, the ability to make progress. And if if you don't have a crisis like this in philosophy, then I don't think there's any progress to be made. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not holding my breath like you are. But I will say that I don't know. We've talked about this. I would refer people to our which discipline is more fucked psychology or philosophy but we talked about this but i i do sometimes wonder about social psychology whether the problem is deeper than you weren't using enough subjects or you weren't your p-values were too low or too high or whatever uh like that that there's something fundamentally mistaken about trying to approach the 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 topics you approach using this kind of controlled studies methodology and l- thinking that lab results generalize to real life in the way that s- sometimes you typically do but that's yeah. a little harder to that's that's a different kind of problem that's not one that will that you can expose by running those same kinds of studies um because once that gets shorn up there'll still be that question yeah and there's uh, like it's not the time right now to talk about this, but there is, I have a lot of thoughts about 
some of the more fundamental problems um, in trying trying to capture something as complex as human behavior in in the basic experimental paradigm. I also I also ha- really think that that um, the way in which psychologists make inferences about uh, the mind based on this method is often mistaken so so we're very bad so many people have asked us to talk, to talk about falsificationism and i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to talk about that but really the case is that um that i think we're we're making inferences wrong about what lab studies show even if they're showing a true thing what we what it says about the human mind in general right. um and and I, so i think there are flaws there and i and i actually think that by the time we get to a robust science of behavior it's going to require people who are a lot smarter than me and modeling of of variables that is much more complex than what we're doing now. Um, and we can get there, but I think the next generation of behavioral scientists is going to have to come from like fucking cut from a different cloth, like physics and engineering, who, like because <laughs> I don't know like that real scientists exactly. Well, engineers aren't real scientists, but <laughs> but yeah, true. but. <laughs> uh, but they build bridges that work, and I don't know. I don't know how many bridges bridges we've built that work in a, in a metaphorical sense. <laughs> yeah. All uh, right. Well, on that note, we'll be right back with me and my stepmother, probably making way less sense. <laughs> Why can't you be that drunk when you talk to me? <laughs> I was I was trying. <laughs> I drank like a couple of bourbons. It's very sobering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, got, shit got real. Today's episode is also brought to you again by one of our favorites, GiveWell.org. Dave, many people want to give to the so-called good charities. We all want to do good. That's why. That's what charity is for. But how can you maximize the good you accomplish for each dollar that you give? Well, GiveWell.org, GiveWell can help you. GiveWell does in-depth, detailed research to identify evidence-backed, cost-effective programs helping the poorest people in the world. You go to their website, www.GiveWell.org, and it provides a very short list of top charities that have met GiveWell's exacting standards. GiveWell is unique because it focuses on how much good a charity accomplishes. For example, how many lives does it save? Or how many, or how much does someone's income increase with each dollar donated? It, it goes straight to the heart of what we are trying to accomplish when we donate to charities. And all the details of Give, GiveWell's work are available for free on its website. GiveWell deeply vets scientific evidence for programs, and it publishes its and it publishes its quantitative cost-effectiveness models, so you can dive deep into the details. If you're interested, I just tend to trust them because they know a lot more about this than I do. And this is the time of year where a lot of people are grading Peter Singer papers, and the number one objection is these charities are all corrupt. These charities don't actually help the people. And GiveWell.org makes that objection no longer viable. So you're going to have to become a Kantian or find some other way to object to Peter Singer's argument. GiveWell is there to make sure that your charity dollar goes a long way to helping people. 
Uh, I just want to say I love the nerds at GiveWell. I think that they're doing the Lord's work. If you were so motivated, tell them you came from Very Bad Wizards. But I, I care less about that than you go and uh, use some of that holiday money and give to people who really need it. That's all I care about. So definitely it's... mention that. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is our annual special Thanksgiving episode where I welcome my stepmother, Christina Hoff Summers. And thanks to the sex panic we talked about last year, yep. or the fabricated sex panic. Was, uh, it, was it fabricated? What are we talking about here? The it's fa- a post-Thanksgiving chat between a, a stepmother and her son. Why are we talking about a sex panic? Because Let's have positive topics. That's why we're here, Affirmative right? topics. Okay. Oh, oh really? Because normally you lecture me about like what's no, no. going on about co- on college campuses no, and like to... how like you can't say anything anymore. If you use one microaggression, you'll be banned from colleges for life. Yes, but no, I'm going to talk to you about, in an affirmative way, another podcast that's rather like Very Bad Wizards, but I think they deal with my topics more responsibly. And I don't. I'm, I hope I'm not being disloyal. Can I name them? I won't name them. I'm not going to sure. say. No, no, name them. Two psychologists, four beers. Oh, I you thought? I thought they made a lot of sense, and they talked about the sex panic, <laughs> and uh, no, they, they talked about the campus follies, and they addressed the underlying issues. It's about intersectionality and and. White privilege. This and all is like this. what people say about Sean Hannity. I, I think he makes a lot of sense, actually. I actually, <laughs> I, he, he kind of speaks to me. But you just like them because they will—they were pander, but no, uh, they didn't they, pander. They'll pander to the IDW crowd. <laughs> well, at great, I, I they so what they did was they talked about, for example, microaggressions. Now, I know if I bring up examples of people being ridiculously persecuted for, you know, a mere lapse of, or not even a lapse for saying something completely reasonable, you'll just say, that's just one example, and my students at the University of Houston never do that, and then you just just dismiss it. So I'm not going to bring up an example. I want to talk about the ideas behind all of these all of this hysteria on campus, and just to see where we agree and disagree, because it's possible that we have a more, you know, only a superficial disagreement. So what do you think, for example, of the idea of someone saying, arguing from identity, that you really can't speak and, or even understand? Wait, identity <clears throat> politics? <clears throat> yeah, so, but I, I, the concept of identity. I just want to make sure our Sam Harris listeners, they, their ears are <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that um, it's sort of like standpoint epistemology, that you, you have a unique point of view as a, as a marginalized person and that someone, a white male, cannot understand your experience and really shouldn't be speaking about it? Well, I mean, that's true it. to some degree, right? Like, I can't understand what it's like to be a black man. You Can you can't... understand what it's like to be me? Like Can you understand what it's like to be swimming in all that IDW money? I mean, it must be awesome. <laughs> Where is the money in the IDW? I haven't found it. <laughs> Where's the money? Show me the money. No, uh, you know. First of all, it, the things that people just haven't thought these ideas through. And what I liked about Yoel and 
Michael, is that they took the time to question these ideas that, that someone, because they're from a group, what does that imply? That everybody from the group has the same experience? That, and that other people can't compassionately identify? And now these ideas are taken so seriously that people hesitate to take roles in movies like Scarlett Johansson was driven out of a film because it was thought that she, she really couldn't understand the the identity of a trans person. So she was pushed out of this movie and it could only go to a trans... So increasingly people are faulting you if you write about another person because you can't identify and understand them. Do you agree with that? Okay, so standpoint epistemology, I have probably way more sympathy with than you would feel comfortable with. I actually think that there's a lot to that. So you think there's such a thing as the woman's standpoint? I, not the woman's stand, standpoint. I just think there's. It is very name one. I think it's very hard. I, I don't think it's necessarily per gender or per, per, per like. Per I agree that that's a problem. It's a huge problem. Well, that's a problem for, as I said, for understanding anyone. I mean, do you know what it's like to be anyone else? I mean, no, right. But I mean, I I I think that it's all a spectrum. I mean, God, we're having kind of a serious conversation given how drunk we are but yeah, okay. um, I think that it really is difficult to think of what it would be like to be a black person or a, a real a, somebody who's grown up in poverty and has had very little education and only reaches you know eighth grade education um, it's very hard to understand how they see the world I will agree with you that I think that for some reason, gender and race and, I guess, lately, trans identity issues By seems way, to be you, getting a privileged position well over things like class and things like just coming from a different kind of background with different kinds of parents. Um, but I think the problem they're identifying is real, but I think what they, they pick and choose who gets to have the privileged standpoint and who doesn't. Well, and right. that's the so, problem. So if you, take, if you take women or you take trans people, you take African Americans, they don't all, the people in those groups don't all agree. So as you said, there's some that have taken it upon themselves to speak for everyone and say, well, you have to take my standpoint seriously. Well, why them? And right. then... It's just not true that people can't imagine themselves in the position of someone else. We do, what is literature for? What are films for? And I don't see that race and gender or class or any category is insurmountable. The people who are, say, speaking on trans issues or speaking on race issues, it's not like they've seen the best films that will trigger the empathy for that particular group, not necessarily. So I want to separate a couple of issues, right? I agree that somebody from within those groups shouldn't claim to speak for everybody because they have diverse opinions. So I agree with that Well, part. that's a big concession because... It's not a concession. Like, I never would think otherwise. Like, that's... I've always thought that. I think, it, I think that's... Do you that's, think that a white author can write about 
an Asian Other white or no, no, no. The, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that one black man can't speak for all black men, and one woman can't speak for all women. Women, one le- lesbian there... can't speak for all lesbian. But no, it's. I don't think it's a matter for all. What I will disagree with with you. So I agree with that. And when they claim to speak for everybody, and they say that you can't, you can't know what it's like from my perspective. That's true, but they also that doesn't mean that they have the right opinion about it. That there might be other people from that same perspective that disagree with them. Exactly. So that's fine. But that still doesn't mean that I can get what it's like to be them. But then you're I think saying they, a, so you're saying they can't necessarily get each other and you can't No, they can get each other. Well, they no, might no, just come from they, different they just might have different opinions about the same experience. And I just don't have that experience. And so my opinion, I, this is where I think standpoint epistemology is right. My experience just is not, it's not as informed. I, I just don't see how you can deny well, what, that. What, with which person, who, who, uh, who, what person can you mention that your experience is sufficiently informed that you can know what it's like to be them? Well, no, like not sufficiently, like... People who are like my people from my family, my friends, my like. I mean, I've known you all your life, and you're a mystery to me. How you turned out the way you are, I don't know what it's like to be you. <laughs> right, but here's where I, let me turn this around because I think you guys are very inconsistent about this. So who's you guys? I, you and for, by the way, microaggression. You, you do not say guys when there's a woman. Present. So so here's where you're not consistent. So I was. Um, not denigrating the Journal of Controversial Ideas, but saying how people should like stand behind your research. If you think it's good research, put your names on it. Don't just like claim to be scared of some like ooh the big boogeyman of political correctness. Okay, just let me, let me stop you. boogie boogie, boogie person. person. Sorry, boogie. And and so then I get criticism from a certain segment of your people <laughs> who say I think it's very disingenuous when someone who has no controversial ideas claims to speak for how people who do have uh, controversial ideas should act. Now, as I understand it... That's my point of view. I... I don't have controversial ideas, but I can sympathize with those who do. My point is that this guy is telling me that it's disingenuous for me to even have an opinion about how controversial people with controversial ideas should behave because I don't okay, have just a because con- some guy has a bad argument, you throw out the whole thing. Well, I have better arguments, okay? Well, right. So let's engage with those. So but right. Just because somebody on Twitter says something, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. You're absolutely right to call me out about that. But I think that's how a lot of this stuff gets generated. There was some person on Twitter who said that... And, and, and you felt bad. I'm sorry that you felt bad. But let's move on to the fact that the, the thing about the Journal of Controversial Ideas, it isn't really about the authors. It's about the ideas. And it doesn't matter. I mean, there are people that are may feel that they would end up with you know people protesting outside their house, and they just don't want it. But they may feel that there are certain discussions. Let's say, let's say, not that we're going to discuss it because I don't want you to lose your job, but let's say, for example, debates around trans identity. 
and how, you know, what should be the rules about pronouns. That can get you in a lot of trouble. And so... Not, not really, though. Not, actually, it can't. Like, they, like, if you make a huge deal, like Jordan Peterson or something, about how you're not going to just make an announcement, but if you just talk like you've always talked your whole life, it actually, nothing happens to you. What do you... Are you kidding me? I mean... Yeah, no, no. Like, this is the thing. Here's the thing that I don't understand. I have a lot of people telling me that I don't understand what goes on on college campuses. I don't go and tell lawyers, like, oh, you don't understand what goes on in law firms. Like, no, you have no... No, stop. You have no idea what's going on in law firms these days. Like, I don't go to some, like, like, guy that works at Applebee's and say... Trust me, no, you think you know what's going on at Applebee's around the country, but you have no idea. Yeah, I don't, like, people keep telling me that I don't know what's going on at college campuses when I've been, like, nonstop working at college campuses for, uh, since 2004, 2003. Okay, so let me ask you a question. This was at, uh... UCLA, it got in the news, but it was also at Santa Cruz, UCSD, Berkeley. Have you heard of those schools? I've heard of okay. you've heard of them. Several, like There's two several of, of them, and it's also uh, University of Pennsylvania and Vanderbilt. Definitely heard of uh, University of Pennsylvania. So, it recently came out that uh, at UCLA, you get that, David. <laughs> uh, faculty at these these UC campuses have to sign a written pledge. Anybody who wants promotion or anybody who wants to get a job, a written pledge. Uh, showing, uh, expressing their commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And they will be evaluated for tenure, not just on teaching, research, service, but also on, I, I just wrote down the names of the schools, Santa Barbara, I mean, sorry, UCLA, Santa Cruz, UCSD, Berkeley, all job applicants and all professors up for promotion must submit a statement, a declaration of allegiance a to... Maoist. No, it's not Maoist. It's just stupid. Now, how do you feel about it? Would you sign it? No. Are you serious? Maybe. Uh, I, I, now, I, I was once asked... That's how I got started, being politically incorrect. I was one, Years ago, a dean sent around um, a form asking us, uh, anytime you want to teach a new course, she changed it, and instead of just saying what you were going to read and you know, what it was going to cover. You had to say how it was going to incorporate the new scholarship on race, class, and gender. And uh, I found it intrusive. Wait, hold on. What? Uh, I said I wouldn't sign, but what does it actually say? It says that uh, if they're up for promotion, they must submit statements, a written pledge attesting to their commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, and that, and, well, and so that, like, I, yeah, I am committed to equity and diversity and and inclusion, right? Okay. I'm not, not okay. committed okay, to those Okay, fine. Things. That's good. Uh, I don't you, like. I, I don't. I don't like that. I would have to sign a statement. I think that's bad. I don't like. But like, I. I, I think that that shouldn't be a policy. But I am. I do. I, do you think that professors should have to sign declarations? So you. I don't. don't. I don't think they should. Absolutely. Okay, so what about the fact that that's going on at major universities? And do you think that well, if you were an assistant professor, you were applying for a job, don't you find it creepy that you'd have to sign this kind of loyalty oath to 
this set of values, which actually, if, as they go on to describe them, it's a it, it, clearly and it, that you have to say you're. Uh, you know what? You have to sign a lot of shit, a lot of bullshit. Not like this. Go, this. Yeah, no, know. this. This violates. But let me again turn this around. So you sent out a tweet. So there, I, apparently there was some guy in political science who was in an elevator, and someone said, "What floor?" And he said, lingerie. Lingerie, lingerie please. Lingerie, please. An old joke. It's an a old, like, joke. like a dad, like an old dad joke. And, uh, for, like, you'd have to get, like, department stores. And, Your dad was capable of that joke. Yeah. Like, you'd have to get all of that. And apparently some woman complained, a right? A feminist sociologist. A feminist sociologist. <laughs> who, who else? And, and so there was some to-do about it. And you tweet that he said that and then you write in all caps fatal mistake right how is it a fatal mistake now i could be wrong about this so this is i am putting myself out there right now i am throwing myself out on a limb and it's dangerous and intoxicating but <laughs> the, here is my t- read of the situation thus far you say it was a fatal mistake for him to say that. They demanded that he apologized. He refused to apologize, and it's fine. No, it's not. Now he's he's been it's been it's escalating. He just wrote a piece. It's escalating. How is it escalating? The, the lawyers, you know, sent four different things that he had to do, and they, what they find especially troubling is that he sent her a letter saying, come on, it was just a joke. I'm, you know, I, I didn't want you to be offended, I, but, but you know, it was still just a joke, so he tried to justify himself. That was re-victimizing the survivor. But what are the repercussions? He'll, he could be thrown out of his professional he, association. He could be. He is, well, but, he, but, he, but he's not going to be, right? It's now... Tamler, it's now this big deal in his association at the International Studies Association. And this is Richard Ned Lebow. He's a professor of political theory at King's College in London. He's he's a, a, an excellent scholar. He has no history of Have any... you read his work? No. <laughs> I, well, he's at King's College, not one of these... Right. Anyway, he's won. I, he has received his association's Distinguished Scholar Award, and he's not. You he, almost seem like you're reading from something. <laughs> well, I have my iPad here. And the professor is Simona Sharoni, professor of women's and gender studies at Merrimack College. She was mortified by his remark. She said, I'm still, you know, trying to come to terms with the fact that we froze and that we didn't confront him. Who would freeze? Because somebody said that. Okay, but never mind that. Let's get to the larger. So here's the la- It's a big to-do. And now he's he's been, you know, and they're going to be like. Trials? Are they going to be? No, here's the thing. Here's my point. Here's, this has always been my point, and I'm so that glad. It's good that he's standing up. No, that if you just do the thing that you did, and then when people ask you to apologize, you don't, and then you leave it there, that's it. The story goes away. But it's he, over. No, he got a letter. Well, he but, wrote a letter to the person. No, that he, was a, like once, don't write a letter to them. No, he, he did. It was the human thing to do. He just wrote and thought, no. thought that would be the end of it. He wasn't no, chastised. Don't write a letter. Like you said something in an elevator. You said an innocuous thing in an elevator. You don't need to write a letter to somebody. You just said it. 
it was a joke, they didn't get it, or they got offended. I, I see how your mind works. And you're telling yourself a story that has nothing to do with the lived experience of people who get... I can't uh, <laughs> understand. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, you're not... No, but that doesn't... Just because you can't doesn't mean others can't. I didn't... It was never my claim that everybody understands everything. It's just me. It's kind of it's just, just I'm you. I'm yeah. okay. <laughs> No, and in his case, he he's now has this big uproar, and the thing is, what, what upsets me isn't even the stupidity of his association and these, these sheepish, you know, these people going along with, with this absurdity, but just that this woman, this professor, and there's so many like her that are so e- e- willing to take offense and just, you know, trigger happy, ready to just, I mean, it's absolutely absurd, and... But you give them power by even like making them out to be these like They're you. They, if power. you just don't, if you just don't engage, it's fine. You and you then you be, get a letter saying, either you do this, you apologize, you swear you will never do this again, or you will be uh, taken out of the association. That's what he he got something like that. Now we'll see if they follow through. Maybe they won't. Worst comes to worst, he can write a best-selling book or have an $80,000 a month YouTube channel. He can have it because what happened to him is insane. And but it hasn't happened. That's the no, thing. It, has it doesn't happen. This woman overreacting. And now men, what men are going to want to work with women if women, if we come up, become typecast by women like this? That we're all just You're not typecast unless you guys make yourselves typecast. You, you, sorry, sorry, sorry. You women make you yourself guys. type. Okay, now that yeah, now, is no. Now, you now women, you have re-traumatized. I, me. I know, but you women typecast yourselves like this by giving these things more press than they warrant. Okay, so that tells me you're not aware of that. They, this so that, this material it? didn't come out of nowhere. For thirty years, I've watched in in gender theory how it became more paranoid and more expansive, and was never corrected because nobody ever wanted to go in and deal with. These this gender studies professor who's carried away because you, it, years ago they would call you names didn't have consequences now they have more power and it has consequences and their scholarship if you question it that's a form of intellectual harassment this is it this is the thing like so do you think that the microaggression theory no fr- but you know what I know that so, is going on in gender studies that it doesn't affect me it, it, but it's affecting all the rest of us because well, you're, you're what are you, the rest of us. Like it's like oh, a, I you don't got, think it affected like, James like a, Damore? Did it affect James Damore in Silicon Valley? It, it did, but again, but I mean, no, he got fucked over. I will agree that that poor Aspergery kid got fucked over. Now, it's what, what? it might even be worse at these Silicon Valley places oh, than it is point. in universities. It is now. This is the thing. So then, We're focus gonna... on that. Stop telling no, me what's going on because you it think it started in the universities. I watched it develop. It was corrupt and it was full of errors and 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 just rigid ideology, dogmatism from the beginning, but no one corrected it. And now these ideas have come to power. And you are right. They are going to be more dangerous in in industry. Briefly. Maybe briefly they will What's going to stop it? People like you calling it out? No, no you're just an apologist like, just, and a denialist. Just the fact that like 99% of people like are, are level-headed about this stuff. They think maybe a correction of some kind needs to be made, and it will be made, and it should be made, but... Okay, here's where you're wrong. 
uh, there are a lot of young people coming along, and they have learned these theories. They learn standpoint theory. They learn microaggression theory, and uh, you know that the United States is a heteropatriarchal, cisgendered. This is just like uh, they you, learn you, you this. No, you they don't. That's wrong. They learn it in the smallest, vanishingly tiny percentage of courses. That does exist. Nobody is denying they exist. You know what else exists? Creationists. There are, there are at, kooky ideas. There are at dangerous. Duke, there are people who still study like paranormal activity. There's like you there, are comparing. There are people who like you are comparing some. I don't know, some nut to the influence of There's intersectionality no influence. And, and, right. and race. Yes, absolutely. Like, I think that this is the weird thing about you and the, the, the you know, everybody, the Rubens and all of you IDW people. You think that the intersectionality dogma has infected the whole, like, university campuses. How about and, Hollywood? And the Hollywood system. Because of the sort of work I do, people send me letters and tell me that in Hollywood now, you, they, um, they're developing a system where you have, remember you had ghostwriters when people were accused of communism and couldn't run? Now you have, you, they have to get women. You cannot get a film made. You have to have women. You have to have, and, and now it's getting more. Well, you know what? Like women should be more represented in movie making and filmmaking. Like that, I didn't that, finish. Right. You, you have to check off all the boxes, not just in the casting, but in the right, at every level of the movie, it's getting more severe. In Hollywood, we're going to get more like, what was that fish movie with this last year? More Finding Nemo? No. The one that won the, I think it won the Academy Award. It was about Oh, a no, it didn't. Shape of Water? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. There's going to be a lot of that. What? It's, not that there's anything. Like the fish? Like fish. Yeah. Oh, like fish, like fish people Sex. hybrid. By the way, I'll buy a. Tape. And I don't mean this in any way, unseriously. But there is a guy in Holland that is suing for because he says that he identifies as a much younger man. He's sixty-eight. He says he feels forty-eight. He's uh, let's say he's uh, age fluid, and I think that I'm age fluid. I think you're age fluid. Yeah. So yeah. I now identify as a 42-year-old, and if anybody dead ages me, they can get in trouble. I'm suing Wikipedia because they have my birthday in there. As you should. I, I totally am on board with that, And but even if I wasn't, I can't understand what it would be like to be a woman uh, of... A, Advanced your advanced, age. <laughs> your advanced age. <laughs> Speaking of that, let's bring my young-looking brother that I get constantly reminded about how young-looking he is onto the podcast. Um, we're at the year anniversary of, <laughs> year <What>? anniversary <laughs> of uh, of you Stop. confessing to wishing to have been in the van. No, it was just sex. <laughs> it was just sex. It right. was just. So I'm glad you brought this up. It wasn't like Aziz because I was 14 or maybe 15, and I think your listeners have the right to know I didn't have sex until 20. So here's a question: Were you an incel? <laughs> Were you a, like a proto incel? <laughs> I am currently an incel, but back then I just think I had bad luck and I went to the Jewish day school. <laughs> All right, we should wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, it went off in too many directions.
until next year where you're warming yourself to uh, Trump's second term. No way, Jose. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.